This is TREP Wire Week in Review for week ending January 15th. I'm Martha Kocher with TREP, a data modeling and analytics firm for the CMBS commercial real estate and CLO markets. I'm with Manus Clancy, Senior Managing Director, Joe McBride, Head of Siri Finance. And joining us this week is our own Lonnie Hendry, Head of Advisory Services. This week, the House voted to impeach Trump in connection with last week's riots. And with less than a week before Biden's inauguration, the president-elect will unveil his plans for a COVID relief package. Meanwhile, states struggle with an unchecked spread of COVID. In economic news, earnings season has kicked off and investors are bracing for fourth quarter results. Unemployment claims spiked above expectations. Holiday retail sales numbers highlighted the bifurcation of online and in-person shopping and stocks hit new highs before ending lower. Manis, the economic news is really underscoring the battle of the virus and the economic shutdown against the vaccine and the stimulus. Yes, it's, uh, it's kind of been the same story for two months now. I keep coming back to the, the old song, which is, I fought the law and the law won. That one by uh, Bobby Fu- the Bobby Fuller Four in 1966. It's also redone by The Clash. I like The Clash version better. But with all these new ups in stock prices, even as interest rates go up, even as people talk about uh, higher COVID numbers, deficit concerns, deficit spending concerns, you see Bitcoin taking off. Oil caught a bid this week, really shot up. My, my two ditties this week are, I fought the Fed and the Fed won. For all those times, I thought that the market was near a peak and, and more liquidity was, was added. I don't want to be the guy that fights the stimulus and watch, watches the stimulus win. So um, I, I think that that's overwhelming everything right now. Yeah, the details just came out. I'll rattle off a couple of them. 1400 bucks to most Americans, bringing the relief to $2,000. And he, of course, these are proposals, right? This is what he's putting forth. It has to uh, go through the House and, and the Senate. Unemployment benefits of $400 per week be ex- extended until September so really to the end of September, that's re- the end of the summer, really a huge safety net increase. Federal minimum wage would be increased to $15 an hour, uh, $350 billion set aside for state and local government aid, $170 billion for K-12 schools and for colleges. Those were some of the headlines that, that made their way in there. You know, I've been concerned for a long time, right? The economic data this week has been underwhelming. Since our last podcast, we saw a really dismal December jobs report, right? They were expecting about 100,000 new jobs to be added. Why that was even an expectation given how many closures we have due to COVID, I, I don't know, but the actual print came in at negative 130,000 jobs. So that was dismal. Um, today, initial jobless claims came in at nearly a million uh, new submissions, which is an increase of 165,000 and the since highest since August. August. Yeah. Yet. None of this, not the impeachment, not the negative uh, economic numbers, not the new closures, it can do anything to uh, offset, offset the, the fire hose of stimulus right now. So I'm looking at uh, gold and it's gone essentially nowhere since, I don't know, six months ago. Uh, or uh, around July, I mean, beginning of 2020, it, it increased. But since around July or August of 2020, it's really been flat. Like in the past, if you had announced a $900 billion and then a $2 trillion, essentially money print, gold should be skyrocketing, but it's not. Um, I mean, 
I'm not a Bitcoin bro at all, but I think that a lot of the money that that people are uh, putting towards an inflation hedge, I mean, maybe not a lot of people, maybe just the nutsos like myself, but people who are putting money towards an inflation hedge are starting to put it more towards Bitcoin and things like that than than even gold at this point, which is kind of crazy to think. It seems like Bitcoin is up between five and 10% every day right now. And I, I think you're right. I think it's attracting new entrants right and left. And I think when these new $1,400 stimulus checks go out, it will attract a whole new set of buyers. Who am I to fight the, uh, fight the wave? To, to get back to real estate, I think that there are parts or there will be parts of the stimulus, at least based on a few articles that I was reading that kind of replenish or increase uh, rental assistance programs. I know there was a specific article about New York and how there was, I think it was something like a billion, they estimated based on a survey, like a billion dollars in unpaid rent by apartment dwellers. And that there was at least that much money in the coffers for rental assistance already in the state's hands, but due to whatever bureaucracy or red tape or, you know, whatever the protocol is of getting access to those funds, they just had not been allocated yet. And I think that the new stimulus will send a lot more money into those coffers. Hopefully they relax the standards to actually get the money out the door, but we'll see about that. If it's any, if it's anything like the vaccine rollout, it's going to take about three and a half years to get that money out. I'm going to meander for a moment. I'm going to go on a meandering, if that's okay with Martha. Uh And I'm going to pivot to something which I think has been extraordinarily efficient and feel good. And that is this thing called the Barstool Fund. I'm not sure, uh, you know, you younger guys probably know exactly what this is. Um, Barstool apparently is a... One bite. Everybody knows the rules. You know, it's it's a website, podcast, largely dedicated to sports. Um, I'm not a consumer of it. You would think I'd be the perfect, you know, guy for this type of thing since I, I love my you're sports. In the demographic, it's not on oh. channel two through 11. Yeah, you're so not in a demographic not really... <laughs> and it definitely is in the entertainment shock jock vein. Okay. For those of well, you I was that never a Howard Stern guy. Yeah, exactly. Now you're onto it. But what I do love is that their founder, this guy, Dave, has raised $24 million so far that is, it was originally supposed to be devoted to helping restaurants uh, make payroll. And so he's raised $24 million. I think the first 500,000 was his own. 180,000 supporters thus far. So an average donation amount of 132 bucks a guy and 125 businesses supported thus far. And from what I understand, it's now going from not just restaurants to things like nail salons, Museums. restaurants. So I, I just think this is a great story. You know, I talked a few weeks ago about how I felt a lot of the stimulus lacked imagination, right? We're just sending out these checks to people, but we're not forcing them to spend. We're not helping small businesses. You know, some of the early Main Street funds and PPP funds had such high thresholds that they couldn't reach down to help these smaller businesses. And I think this was a great show of people pulling together, 180,000 supporters, people doing this on their own, um, helping businesses. I, I think that this is just a wonderful thing. And, and it just had me thinking a little bit more about, you know, not only has the stimulus lacked imagination, I think the whole thing, and the whole thing being the whole 
Washington ecosystem and, and the state ecosystems has been way too much castor oil and not enough encouragement, right? It's been a lot of don't do this, can't do this, don't do this. It's been very short on get out there and support your local restaurant, take out, tip big, right? Use them as often as you can. And, you know, if I, if I had been a politician, not that I ever will be, you know, if I had a press con conference every day, I'd be saying we bought lunch in for the, for the reporters here from, you know, Michael's Deli on Main Street. Um, for the first time, somebody's really been empathetic to those people that are really, really getting crushed and good for him. No matter your opinions on Barstool or Dave Portnoy or whatever, if you're not getting teared up watching these videos when he calls these people, I mean, listen, he's generating more donations by publishing these videos every single day because it really encourages you to say like, holy moly, this woman that's owned this laundromat for 35 years is bawling her eyes out because she just got a, a lifeline, you know, and this is, it's very cool to watch. So you should definitely go check it out. Did you donate to this, Joe? Yeah, I donated on December 31st at like 11.30 p.m. <laughs> just to make sure I got the tax deduction. So so let me amend my thing. It's not just 180,000 average Americans supporting this. It's one below average American too. <laughs> oh, ouch. I think it really shows the power of the social media. And as Joe yes. pointed out with the Bitcoin and the best investors with TikTok and everything else, everyone's become an expert. But to your point, Manis, with the Barstool Fund, it really... You know, it strikes that that empathy chord. And to, to Joe's point, when you see the videos and you see these people, you know, getting emotional, they've spent their whole life building something. And the fact that they're going to be able to persevere through this with a little bit of assistance, you know, it encourages people just to buy back into, you know, what was the American dream. And let's get on to the payoff report for December. What did it show? Well, for those who uh, are new listeners or haven't heard this before, we do track the percentage of loans that are, have come to their maturity date in a given month and, and pay off or do not pay off. You know, what percentage were paid off on that balloon date and what percentage did not. Two years ago, those numbers were regularly 75, 80%, 85% sometimes uh, of the loans would pay off on time. Often a borrower would take another month or two and another, another couple of percentage points would show up after a month or two. Um, over time, we started to see that dwindle a little bit. Uh, about a year ago, it was more 50s and 60s. But with the beginning of COVID, we really saw that tail off. We saw some numbers that were actually below 10% by allocated uh, balance percentage, meaning um, in one month, May 2020, only 5% of the loans by balance paid off on time. The rest extended. June 2020, 9%. We saw that kind of come back in recent months. We saw some 50s. Um, we actually even saw an 80 in November. But this month, it fell back to 32%. That decline was largely due to a couple of big mall loans that were unable to refinance. The Kenwood Town Center, $194 million loan, uh, was supposed to pay off in December. It made up 40% of a 2011 deal. The collateral contains about three quarters of a million square feet in Cincinnati, Ohio. Um, that was one of the large loans that did not pay off. Uh, a second one, the Oxford Valley Mall loan, uh, which makes up 15% of a 2011 deal. This is a 1.24 million square foot uh, property in Middletown Township, PA, a super regional mall in that so even though that particular property 
for H1 2020 posted a debt service coverage ratio of 2.6x. Uh, it was not able to be taken out in, in December. So we've seen a lot of that in the hotel space. We've seen a lot of that in the mall space. And that really drives the numbers for right now. So in this particular month, 32% of the loans by balance uh, paid off. Joe, you did an analysis of CRE performance and specifically looked at distressed property valuations. What did the analysis show? Yeah, sure. So I did a presentation. I have to give a shout out to my guy, Russell G over at DA Davidson. We did a fun client call with them yesterday. A lot of kind of chief credit officers and others on the phone uh, interested in commercial real estate. I hope actually some of them are listening because I gave a very strong plug for the podcast at the end of the of the talk. So yeah, we talked about you know a review of 2020 delinquency rates, both in CMBS and in bank balance sheet loans, which we've talked plenty about here. Uh, one thing in particular I looked at, which was of interest to them, was what are the, and we've talked about this maybe two or three months ago, but this is a good update. We looked at all properties um, in CMBS that have gotten reappraised since February of uh, 2020. And, you know, most people know that the reappraisal only really happens when there's something wrong, right? The, the borrower is having trouble. It's in special servicing, right? Something like that. So you never, you rarely see a reappraisal and it increases, although we've seen a few of those this year. So after looking at all of these, there were uh, among the five major property types, there were almost 800 um, properties reappraised. The median appraised value change goes something like this. So hotels, it was down 34%. Retail was down 45%. Office was down 42%. Multifamily was essentially zero. There were a few reappraisals there, but actually some of them were up, some of them were down. And industrial super small loan count. There was only five of these that got reappraised and they were down 40%. I would take those as outliers, really. Um, the one interesting nugget that I kind of pulled out of here, which is not super surprising, is that the average pre-reappraisal, the average original value on the lodging side was 36 million, while the average original value on the retail side was 78 million. So what that tells me is a lot of the retail that's getting reappraised are the larger centers, the malls, you know, all the stuff that we normally talk about. Yeah. I think these, these valuations, you know, pretty much exemplify the, the properties where the lender and or the borrower in some combination have determined that the, the asset, you know, as, as it's currently constituted is probably no longer viable. So, you know, these are not ones that in six weeks are going to be turned around and repositioned. These are properties that probably had some underlying fundamental issues before the pandemic that have just been you know, exposed to this point now. They're trying to get to that that bottom line number. So it'll be very interesting to see how this plays out. I mean, still 799 loans is a pretty small sample set relative to the universe. But to your point, Joe, you know, the retail side with the average value of 77 million starting and then seeing 45% reductions, it's pretty significant if and when it happens. Yeah, I mean, there's a wide distribution across these and it is not out of the question and we've seen them before both in the great financial crisis and in the last six months that you get a retail property that sees a 75%. Yeah, yeah I've actually, actually seen a couple in Texas on some regional malls where the initial reduction was in August and it was pretty significant, but then there was a follow-up to that in December, which, you know, effectively cut the value in half or more. Yeah. We, I, we put, when we put this together, we did actually put a little kind of histogram type dealio here and, uh, 
if you look at the bars for a uh, hotel, they are really kind of condensed or uh, concentrated around that 30% mark, minus 30%. So there's a lot in the 30 bucket, the 20 bucket, the 40 bucket. Retail, on the other hand, is actually kind of evenly dispersed all the way down to the minus 70% bucket. So you got like something like 40 or so uh, properties that are minus 70 or worse, and another 30 in the 60, another 30 in the 50. So it's uh, it's definitely worse in retail, I think probably because there's there's light at the end of the tunnel for lodging. We've said this before, the truism is all lodging has been affected kind of equally, right? Extended stay, roadside, hotel, big city hotel. They've all seen that colossal fall in occupancy and they've all seen that colossal dip in debt service coverage ratio, right? It, it's been a very evenly distributed level of pain. On the retail side, there have been some winners out of this and the malls are not them. The malls are the big losers out of this, but where you have properties where there was a Walmart or a Target or a grocery store, even if they were struggling for other reasons, right? They lost other tenants other than the grocery store, they're not gonna get the same haircut that you would see a shopping mall get, right? There are winners and losers, unlike the, the hotel area. Okay, Lonnie, when looking at valuations in the absence of other reliable data points, and there's some cases where you don't have any, multipliers are used as a reliable measure. Walk us through how that works so that people get an understanding of that. Yeah. So, you know, we're what, 10, 10 months into the pandemic at this point, the market hasn't found its normalcy yet. The transactions have pretty much, you know, stopped happening except for in liquidation scenarios where it's rock bottom pricing. So, you know, if you're in the market, if you're an acquisitions person or you're, you know, maybe a seller looking to take your property to market, there's not a lot of really good verifiable information coming from the marketplace. So, you know, something kind of a back of the envelope method to come up with a value is just using income multipliers. It's, it's been around for a while. I don't think any appraiser would say they're going to base evaluation from an appraisal perspective on a multiplier. Um, but in the absence of uh, a verifiable transaction data, it, it does get used in the market. So, you know, the most pr predominantly used is probably the effective gross income multiplier or gross income multiplier, where effectively you divide the sales price by the, the gross annual, you know, rental income or, or effective gross income to come up with almost a de facto cap rate, um, but it's a multiplier. And if you have enough of those properties where top line revenue is available, then you can you know, create some market norms or benchmarks that you can use to determine a value. For lodging, you know, sometimes they'll use a room revenue multiplier, same concept, uh, but instead of looking at total you know, operating revenue, they're looking at just room revenue. So you know, it does have some shortfalls, but I think you know, unprecedented times sometimes call for secondary or you know tertiary type of uh, analysis. And this is certainly something that the market has done. I would say I'd be a little remiss if I didn't mention, you know, here at TREP under our advisory services umbrella, we've done some COVID-19 value loss impact studies across asset classes. So we've taken it maybe one step further than a multiplier, but we've looked at some of the, you know, financial characteristics of certain assets, whether it be occupancy, cap rates, and some other factors, you know, related to property performance. And we've actually determined, you know, a value loss index across certain asset classes and certain geographies. So that's something that TREP's taken very seriously and really leveraged our tools and resources to try to come up with something that the market could benefit from. So does the multiplier expand when revenue diminishes, right? Some of these hotels have seen, you know, a 40% 
reduction maybe in revenue from uh, 2019 to, you know, maybe what pro forma 2020 revenue numbers would look like. Do they take the full brunt of that? Meaning does the multiplier stay the same and you just slap that across and the value is just sliced or does the multiplier expand to kind of say, you know, at some point we'll get back to normal and, you know, we should use a more liberal multiplier uh, under these conditions. Yeah. So that's a, that's a great question. I think the reality is, is when the market's stable, um, you know, you would use a direct cap valuation. You wouldn't really waste your time on a multiplier because you'd have cap rates and you have st stabilized occupancy, et cetera. I think right now, you know, if you were to ask somebody what's a stabilized occupancy for a, you know, limited service hotel in any, you know, given city, they're going to have a hard time giving you that information right now. So what a multiplier would do is just give you a sense of what market normalcy might be based on those revenue numbers. So if the occupancy was stabilized in a market at 20%, the corresponding multipliers in that market would be different than one that was at 60% stabilized occupancy currently. So it's, it's kind of a snapshot for that local market in those conditions. And that's why I think it's a short-lived endeavor relative to the valuation profession, because as soon as things get back to stabilization, you wouldn't rely on the multiplier. But for right now, kind of a back of the envelope test of reasonableness. If you ran through and did an analysis on four or five hotels and the multipliers all were in the same range, you would know you probably are looking at a market proxy for that particular subset. Turning to retail, we saw digital sales growth continuing to impact brick and mortar performance. And we had a number of stories on that front. Well, the two big, the big ones that came in this week, the two big holiday sales numbers came from Nordstrom and Target. Nordstrom showed a big dip year over year in sales. It was offset partially by an improvement in their digital footprint, but their same store sales were just really off. Um, Target was the other side of the coin. They, of course, are selling every essential that you could possibly need and then some. Uh, they saw their store, their same store sales really surge. Interestingly, the share prices of both stocks were down about one or two percent in the immediate aftermath of the uh, announcements of their sales. And it just goes to show that expectations for Nordstrom's were really just extraordinarily low, and those for Target were extraordinarily high. So um, people were just probably counting on. 20 or 30% for Target, and they, they came on the lower end of that and probably were expecting uh, even bigger losses than Nordstrom actually posted. So this is a little bit of a, uh, a tangent off the, the retail stories, but I have to ask, because we have our uh, award-winning recurring guest, Lonnie on, you know, up here where we are, although Manus, I guess you're back in South Carolina, but where I am, Nobody, I mean, things are kind of shut down. People are going out and people are wearing masks and they're going to the stores and whatever, but what's the vibe down there? Are we, or am I kind of overestimating the, the negative impact on retail stuff, occupancy, rents, et cetera, because of my myopic New York viewpoint? Are they just, is it just like a maskless Shangri-La down in Texas? So it, uh, it's been an interesting, you know, progression. I think in, at first, Texas was pretty slow to uh, adopt to the COVID-19, you know, mask wearing and wash your hands frequently and stay socially distant. I think, uh, you know, shortly after the initial run up in numbers, everyone tried to do a better job. And I know uh, here in Austin, where I'm at, uh, we've actually gone back to stage five. So they've reduced 
capacity at restaurants, reduce capacity at some of the outdoor venues um, so that people are trying to, uh, they're trying to legislate keeping people apart from each other. So I do think people are, you know, forced to take it seriously, but from a retail perspective, it's interesting because a lot of the retail storefronts have just pivoted here to, you know, the curbside pickup and everything else. And interestingly enough, I was doing a, some research for some big box retailers here in Texas and pulling through some data relative to lease, you know, leasing amounts, um, leasing velocity, et cetera. And you'd be surprised at how active that market is uh, relative to pre-pandemic. So, you know, some of your big box retailers, Ross Dress for Less, TJ Maxx, Marshalls, you know, it seems that they're doing pretty well. Um, there's been activity with them. A lot of the centers were those, you know, medium junior anchors, 25 to 40,000 square foot centers, uh, you know, are housed. Their occupancies at a center level are still above 90%. So I don't know what that means long-term, if that's going to be sustainable, but at least at this point, the data would indicate that for those mid-tier, you know, 25 to 40,000 square foot tenants, uh, the market's not completely gone away for them. It was interesting. We did note a few weeks ago that that part of the market, you know, the 200,000 square foot property that had a Hobby Lobby or a Michaels and maybe a Marshalls and maybe a below five, something like that had really sidestepped the big delinquency uptick and the big uh, valuation downdraft. And that came as a surprise to me. Um, I, I, I thought that, you know, they don't sell essentials at Hobby Lobby or Michaels or places like that um, or Marshalls, right? They do sell, sell kind of lower cost clothing, but nothing that would be critical. And yet it seems like they have held on much better than the shopping mall space. And uh, good for them. I, I hope that continues. It's something that I didn't really expect. I'm telling you, I've said it before, I'll say it again. There is something about being able to go from the parking lot into the store. And for whatever reason, people do not like going into some deep cavernous you know, parking garage and then going up the elevator three levels and then walking in the inside mall to go to the store. I mean, that's a super generalization, but just, you know, it seems like that's, that's where it's at the best buys. And, and I can tell you across the street from where I just moved in or like down the road and across the street, it's one of those type of centers and it has a Michael's, it has a, some sort of gym, like giant gym. And you know what it has, which is very surprising, a Staples. There must be a, you know, a lot of office supply needs up here where I am. But they just put in, they also put in, in one of the out parcels, a Popeye's. And the other day they opened and the line was about two miles long. And I'm not even kidding you. So I'm going to have to go try out the, uh, the chicken sandwich. I mean, Joe, I think a lot of those uh, centers benefit from having pad sites with restaurants or fast food. Because to your point, somebody can roll through the drive-thru, pick up lunch, eat in the parking lot, run in and grab something at Marshall's and, and you know, check two things off the list at, at one time. You know, being down here in South Carolina now, I, I think that there's this perception that, uh, you know, the red states are very much in the don't tread on me hmm. world. And uh, I have to say, you know, right from the get-go, I, I do feel like people were in their masks whenever they went into the Walmart or the Target or the Ingles. And, uh, you know, I, I do feel like people have been respectful throughout the whole thing. And I think it comes back to the whole castor oil slash encouragement riff I went on in my earlier meandering. I think, you know, way too much castor oil and way too much negativity 
and just not enough credit being given to the American people for the steps they have taken to do the right thing um, across the whole country. I, I really believe that. We saw some reports, a number of reports that highlighted that online shopping once again was up year over year, some 32%. And obviously that's playing out in what we're seeing with some of the stories. The Baton Rouge Mall is one example, Manus. Yeah, it was the last of the holdouts. The Cortana Mall in Baton Rouge had one tenant left. It was like the last of uh, the Mohicans or, or the Alamo. Dillard's was the only retailer left. They finally decided to pull the plug there uh, they'll be closing uh, in April or May. It was the oldest mall in Baton Rouge, and their closing will open up the door for the owner of the property to pivot that into an Amazon distribution center. So for a long time, I thought this repositioning of malls was a little bit like a unicorn, right? The thing you talked about but never saw. But now we've seen several stories in the last couple of weeks of uh, people trying to do this. We saw a couple of Amazon stories, one in Worcester, Mass., and now here, one in Baton Rouge, and we did see that Fortnite maker taking over the Cary Mall in North Carolina. So uh, starting to become more a reality and less a, uh, a future thing in many places. Do you think in these cases, I don't know if you know the answer, maybe one of you does, but is this um, Amazon coming in and saying, we'll reposition this thing and use it? Or is it a developer coming in and saying, I'll reposition this and I'll work with Amazon to get them on a lease? Do you think? Well, it's a good question. In the Worcester situation, uh, Amazon was the rumored tenant. Does mm -hmm. that rumor start with the, the owner of the property hoping to gin up interest right. and get financing for this or not? I don't know. In the case of Fortnite, that was a bona fide purchase, yeah. the Fortnite uh, owner buying that mall. In the case of Baton Rouge, they call it the opening of the door. So I don't know if this opens the door to them to position it or if they have a, a handshake already with Amazon. In the office sector, we saw news from key markets in San Francisco, Chicago, and New York, and perhaps a prediction of the death of the office desk. Well, a couple of markets that I'm um, watching right now, um, one is, is Chicago, which is has kind of flown under radar a little bit. Um, Houston has gotten a lot of the headlines in terms of having enormous amounts of, of shadow space um, New York has had a, a lot of uh, eyeballs on it, even though it's kind of held up pretty well thus far. But Chicago, um, just an enormous amount of sublet space right now. It's up to 5.3 million right now, according to the Chicago Tribune. Among the names of, of firms that uh, have already put space up on the market, uh, Groupon, Uber, TTX, which is a freight Freightline Operator, Capital One, Cars.com, PayPal, and Facebook. We know that Bank of America is giving up about 600,000 square feet at 135 LaSalle to move to a new headquarters. And this week, uh, interesting, the Chicago Tribune was reporting that the Chicago Tribune was making their space available for sublet. They occupy uh, about 140,000 square feet of space at Pru Plaza. That represents about 6% of the square footage. Pru Plaza backs a $415 million loan. Uh, the Tribune lease is long-term. Uh, it goes to 2030. So unless the Tribune goes out of business, which is uh, in the current environment uh, with publishers, it's not certainly not out of, not out of the question. But assuming they don't, uh, their lease is in place for another 10 years. Um, so the owners of the property will be either getting a termination fee or will continue to get their lease payments. 
Um, but it does mean, you know, just another 140,000 square feet of space in that market, you know, coming on board. The interesting thing here, if you were paying attention to the, the firms that I rattled off, a lot of e-commerce firms among these names, right? We think that this e-commerce office provider is the salvation of the office guy, right? We've said how Facebook and Uber and Google and others have been huge consumers of space in the 24-hour cities. But if you look here, Facebook was among those giving up space via sublet. Um, Cars.com, Uber, Groupon, right? And you wonder, is, is this a Chicago thing where people think, I'd rather be in New York or, or, or San Francisco rather than Chicago? Or is this kind of the, uh, the camel's nose under the tent, which is, you know, or the canary in the coal mine, pick your metaphor, that says maybe we're hitting peak needs uh, for these e-commerce guys for office space. He's the camel in the coal mine. Yeah, there was a couple of stories uh, this week that were interesting. M Martha brought up the one about the office desk, the death of the office desk. I really hope that's not the case. I mean, we've been moving towards this whole like trading floor style open office plan. You know, the guy next to you is on a sales call and he's yelling in your ear type of thing. I mean, I hope that there's I hope that there's somewhere for me to go when I get to the office and I don't have to choose like which beanbag chair to sit in uh, in the future. Well, I was fortunate enough for most of my career or at least a second half to have a private office. And, you know, without a desk, where do you put your feet when you're taking that nap? I was going right? to say. I mean, like a beanbag chair does not, not do it for me. Not to mention the fact that they're always those vinyl. They're made out of vinyl and you start sweating almost instantaneously. <laughs> it's like the old car seats in the summer. Right. Unless you put a towel on your parents' station wagon car seat, you're going to burn your you're skin. You're going to scald yourself. <laughs> the only bad thing about your office back then was that you had to walk through it to get to the balcony. So you had like uh, people always walking through there. Uh, it was a great balcony, though. Someday <laughs> I'll tell the balcony story about the snipers, but we'll save that for a different Save that uh, for another day. So, for another day. For later. So, there's one, another one. So there's two, two other kind of office nuggets here. So, one is, I wouldn't really call this a deal of the week, um, but it's uh, the story was in Commercial Observer. It's actually, I think it was last week they reported it, was the law firm Ballin, Stoll, Bader, and Nadler uh, is moving to 810 7th Avenue. And the reason that this caught my eye is because they, they secured a deal that included 12 months of free rent. So it just goes to show you kind of what, where the kind of concession market is right now in midtown Manhattan uh, for these large office tenants. Uh, it's an SL Green building. I think Cressa was the, uh, the, the broker in the deal. Um, so, you know, they're just moving uh, a few blocks away from their current office, which I think is 729 7th. So, you know, interesting story. 12 months of free rent is, is pretty, a pretty strong concession. And, um, Last thing I'll say on this, there's a guy called Chris Powers. Um, he's a great kind of real estate Twitter follow. If anyone's on the real estate Twitter game, he's uh, at Fort Worth Chris. He had a, a thread a few months back talking about the office space. That I'm going to take a few nuggets out of it. I think he also has a podcast, so uh, maybe we'll have him on someday. Um, so if Chris, if you're listening, uh, give us a shout. So he says, I'm long office. I'm listening to people, not headlines. As reality sets in, the more people are telling me they're grateful for an office to go to. 
not because it's fancy, but, but because they get to be with the team, right? We are social creatures that has never changed. I'm betting it never will. No matter what industry you're in, the best of the best are surrounded by a network of deep relationships. They'll shake hands, fist bump, high five, hug, and so on. You know, team dinners and celebrations. I mean, we just had a call today internally talking about, you know, we haven't had, we've done so much work in the last year and we haven't had one, you know, slice of pizza with each other. We haven't had like one ping pong game. We haven't had, you know, a beer out on the patio after a big release. Like those things are small and maybe I take them for granted when I'm in the office, but like those are important, you know what I mean? To build the team. So I do think that there will always be a place for the office and there was one other, I don't think Chris wrote this, but one of the other guys in, in the Twitter world was writing this, that like the people who want to make a difference and the people who want to make big decisions and, and really kind of drive a company forward are the ones that are going to be in the office, right? And the people who aren't are the ones that aren't. So um, I do think there's going to be a lot more flexibility, you know, working from home will be much more common, but you still need a place to get together. So that's the end of my rant. And we saw a couple of other reports. San Francisco's office market has had the worst year in decades, according to Krishman and Wakefield. New leasing activity plunged 71% from the year prior. Meanwhile, on the other coast, Governor Cuomo's announced a rapid testing program to bring office workers back sooner. They're going to have pop-up testing sites in the state-designated orange zones, and the orange zones are where... Cases are high. Hospitals are full. That's where uh, all the Mets fans are. Oh, ouch. Ouch. Get it? Um, Orange. Yeah. So uh, Until Steve we'll Cohen see. took over that team, there weren't enough admitted Met fans to have a super spreader event. That's my, my two cents on that. Now that Steve Cohen's there, different story. Everybody's a Met fan right now. So I'll, I'll say one thing about this whole rapid testing concept is it seems like a disaster waiting to happen for me. You know, I think that any sort of kind of initiative led from Albany that's supposed to actually have, you know, people swabbing your nose at every single restaurant and every single office, but and all that, like, it just, it's not bureaucratically possible for the government entity to pull that off. I could see if you say, hey, like, let me somehow support all these businesses in getting tests you know, sent to them and they can use them as they see fit and that type of thing. Like, I just don't see how it's humanly possible to do this when, you know, they're fining hospitals for giving vaccines to the wrong people. I mean, it's like, I just don't think it's really possible for this to be useful. Yeah, you have I to would... get people confident, right? That's the most important thing. We need confidence. What happens if you test positive? Do they have like a secret exit door where you slide out with the mask on so nobody sees you or do they you know rush you downstairs into a getaway car or something like that's the part that it, i don't quite understand they test everyone and if 20 percent of the people test positive well like what, what are you going to do with those folks and then if they don't show up to the office for two weeks like how does that work so um i'm with you joe i think it's it's good you know headline fodder to say hey we're going to get offices back up and running but in terms of just rolling it out and the practicality of it i, I don't see it it's gonna be like the PS5, right? That Best Buy would say we had PS5s, but you get there and there was only two of them. You know, I have a feeling these guys are gonna say, you know, we have testing here and either they're gonna have two swabs, right? They'll get all these people coming in, but they won't have enough stuff for them. Or 
some grifters will be out there with just swaps, right? They won't do anything. Five bucks a swap. No, they'll just go right into the trash. They're like, oh, don't worry, we'll, we'll contact you. Just go buy something. Inside. Like right, those guys selling it. loose cigarettes on the corner, uh, you know? Yeah, I mean. Newport, Newport, COVID yes. test, COVID test. When you talk about Cuomo today, there was a thing this week, which if we're talking about canaries in the coal mine, there was a definitive change in his tone in his State of the Union this week or State of the State. Uh, you know, for the last nine months, it has been nothing but castor oil, you know, and, and threats. But somebody must have slid under his door the actual forecast for, you know, tax revenue for 2021. Because for the first time since the pandemic began, he started saying, we need to open up even if people are not all vaccinated. Um, but there was a definite change in tenor this week that hopefully for the, uh, the better. And looking at deals of the week, Manus, we're turning our attention to Houston, apparently. Yeah, Houston and then back to Chicago. I got, I got three. I'll run through them quickly. We've talked about Houston. It has been a disaster for some period of time, ever since uh, oil prices you know, went below $40 a barrel. Um, energy firms have been contracting or folding, as the case may be. And it also coincided with several major firms opening up new headquarters like Shell and uh, waste management and others. So uh, a lot of headwinds there before COVID. Uh, COVID only uh, hastened the problems in that particular market. So a couple of stories here. One is a definitive positive. Uh, Vroom, which is a e-commerce car seller, took 102,000 square feet of space in Houston's West Chase Park. I believe it's Vroom. So uh, really happy to see that. Any lease is a good lease in Houston right now in the office segment. So really happy to see that. Um, the owner of the property was repped by Trans Western's uh, executive VP, Eric Anderson, along with Parker Burkett and Katie Gregg. So um, great for them. And also Louis uh, Crepito of JLL repped Vroom. So I love to see that deal get done. Uh, the second deal we saw, uh, Yonin Properties acquired the 455,000 square foot to Westlake Park property. Uh, that's according to the Houston Chronicle. The price was not disclosed. The asset is a, an REO asset of a CMBS deal. It has an unpaid balance of almost $88 million plus another 2 million in unpaid advances and fees. Uh, it makes up 8% of a CMBX 8 deal. The property was valued $124 million in 2014. Rialto Capital bought it at a foreclosure auction for $35 million. Um, the value was later lowered in October to $24.1 million. So a big loss is forthcoming on this particular asset that will impact um, that 2014 deal in a big way. We can only hope that the sale price was higher than 24.1 million, but it will give people once that price is disclosed a data point for what an asset should be valued at. This asset had 6% occupancy, uh, according to the latest servicer data. Um, the second largest tenant had been BP Federal Credit Union. It vacated in 2017. It had 36% of the space. At the end of 2019, ConocoPhillips uh, lease expired. They had 46% of the space. 
um, 200,000 square feet. That's what kind of contributed to the 6% um, occupancy of that. So look for that data point soon. Um, JLL's Dan Miller and uh, Martin Hogan represented Rialto in the sale. For Unin, um, hopefully I'm pronouncing that correctly, it's the second time they will have owned this particular property. We should just put a disclaimer at the very beginning of every episode that says, we're sorry for mispronouncing anybody's names. Yeah, it's uh, <laughs> it's a real- It happens every week. It's a real problem. I need uh, that guy from My Fair Lady to help me, not only with my diction, but also my pronunciation. And that phonetic spelling. Who is that guy? All right. Uh, lastly, the Chicago Ridge Mall, it's an $80 million loan. Um, it's a, a mall in Chicago. They had a Carson Peary Scott, who was a Bonton, part of the Bonton family. Uh, the Carson property had been 27% of the space in that mall. They vacated when Bonton liquidated all their stores in 2018, causing the occupancy at the collateral behind the loan to drop from 99% to 72%. Patch was reporting this week that Dick's Sporting Goods has broke around and will take a third of the space that Carson Peary had occupied. So um, a ray of hope uh, for that particular thing. Although throughout the pandemic, that property and that loan have performed well. DSCR has been 2.6x in 2020, and the loan has been current. Uh, it's a Starwood loan uh, throughout the pandemic. So uh, more good news. That was Rex Harrison, by the way, who was also Dr. Doolittle, just for those of you that were listening. I knew shout that. outs, shout outs, Omar E, who shouted us on Twitter, Howard L, our own Tom Fink, who sent us a story about Oz Impact Funds that's paid $100 million for manufactured housing communities in the Midwest. Simon H. has become a loyal listener, and David Goldfisher, whom we've had on the podcast previously, had uh, some conversation about CMBS and market share, and I think he disagreed with you, Manis. Yeah, I mean, I wrote a piece recently that suggested that based on how quickly CMBS lending came back in June and how strong the market had been in primary issuance throughout the second half of 2020, that CMBS had, a, had an opportunity to grow market share going forward. They were the first to uh, open up lending to parts of the market when banks and insurance companies seemed to be a little bit back on their heels. Um, that was the glass half full look at things. Uh, David's uh, comments were that um, the borrower experience and, and he himself and his firm, they are workout specialists. They work with borrowers to work with special servicers to get um, agreed upon terms on modifications and, and so forth. Uh, he thinks that the borrower experience remains quite negative and some of that um, market share will be lost going forward. He makes a very good point. I could see his point certainly being true. I do think that there's two sides uh, of this particular argument. The glass half full case is that uh, because they were aggressive issuers will capture market share um, the glass half empty case, which he certainly has a point is that, um, you know, the hoops that borrowers had to jump through to get modifications and relief uh, were substantial. And that may 
uh, stigmatize the market going forward. Time will tell. I certainly hope I'm right for many reasons, but uh, I may not be. And in December, an anti-corruption measure was passed known as the National Defense Authorization Act, which sounds very official. The law includes policies that impact organizations that purchase real estate. So, Lonnie, give us a quick synopsis of how this might impact real estate. Well, most uh, commercial real estate transactions are, are, you know, commenced with an ownership group being set up as an entity, an LLC or something like that. And in some instances, those uh, corporations have been really good at keeping the true identity of the ownership, you know, unidentified. And with the passage of this uh, Corporate Transparency Act, effectively, you know, buyers of real estate or anyone that sets up, uh, you know, an LLC or an, a corporation are going to have to be identified on the documents. And that'll be sent to the financial intelligence unit um, maintained for business records. Let's try to, you know, root out um, money laundering and other negative things. But for the commercial real estate market, it could potentially have an impact if people didn't want to be disclosed. Maybe they find an alternative investment uh, opportunity for those funds. Yeah, my, my big concern right now this week is, is simply that, um, you know, we saw the Trump organization get quote unquote canceled in terms of banks coming out and saying that um, they wouldn't do business with the Trumps any longer or the Trump organization. Uh, and, and there were rumors and suggestions that other entities, whether they're businesses or individuals, whom had worked for the Trump um, cabinet or had supported him in his campaign would face similar scrutiny going forward. And those of you who are football fans may have noticed last week that Nickelodeon aired the Bears Saints wildcard game complete with slime cannons and kid-friendly explanations of rules. I don't know if you guys watched it. I did. It was actually pretty good. So this was an effort to help the casual or non-football fan dip their toe. Is that what? Uh, well, to really? try to get kids to watch yeah. football. The NFL is not dumb, right? Yeah. They are smart. So they're trying to get in. And that's ABC. Does ABC own Nickelodeon? I'm not sure. But you know what? It was viral. Like I wasn't watching it on Nickelodeon, but it was all over Twitter and Instagram and everything else. Like a lot of adults and especially people like my age who grew up on Nickelodeon, like there was some nostalgia. Imagine like, you put in Double Dare and Guts and Hey Arnold and Slime and Nostalgia, and then you mix in football and like sports gambling. It's like the end all be Nirvana. all. Yeah. I want Nickelodeon to take over the Iron Chef for a couple of days. You know, I watched that show with my wife and I know immediately that I can't do anything that, they, that they're doing. They pull out a pan and they pour some avocado oil in. And my first thing is, what kind of pan? Is my pan gonna burn? What's the temperature? right? Is, is cod a shellfish or is, you know, is that going to trigger an allergy, right? All these different things come to mind. And I need that, you know, dip your toe into Nickelodeon touch for my cooking. There's an idea for somebody. Somebody will pick that up. With that, we'll close. Thanks to our producer, Haley Keene. Thank you, Lonnie, for joining us. Join us next week as we discuss what's happened during the week and how it may be impacting you. If you have a question or just a comment, send us an email at podcast.trep.com. For more info, visit trep.com and subscribe to the podcast with your favorite provider. Thank you for listening and stay well. Let's go Rangers. All right. <laughs>